Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 67 of Honestly Unbalanced. This week's guest is Nina Zolito. Nina is a longtime yoga writer as well as a practitioner and a yoga teacher. Her special areas of expertise are yoga for emotional well being, including yoga for stress, insomnia, depression, and anxiety, and yoga for healthy aging. Nina is editor-in-chief of the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog, and she's also just written a book which came out on June the 14th, I believe, called Yoga for Times of Change. In this conversation, we chat about yoga as a tool to combat stress and anxiety, why meditation isn't always a good thing, that was an interesting one, how yoga poses can have an emotional effect on us, not using the word negative to describe emotions, how emotions are all teachers, the idea of pre-grief, why humans resist change, the different degrees of anxiety, and also ways to trigger our relaxation response. Enjoy the episode. If you are looking to treat yourself to a brand new juicy yoga mat, look no further than Lifeform. Lifeform are by far the best, best yoga mats. Me and Adam have one in pretty much every single color, and we would never go anywhere else. Luckily for you, you also get a 10% discount if you use the code HUSTLER at checkout, which is capitals H-U-S-L-E-R, and just head to the Lifeform website. That's L-I-F-O-R-M-E dot com. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I've never come across a one-sentence story. Could you give an, exa- <laughs> an example? Tell us or, a story. Well, how did you get into writing one-sentence stories? Mm-hmm. Um, I was... Uh, really busy at the time I was working for a software startup company. So I had this whole, you know, 20 year period of my life where I was actually in the high tech world uh, before it was as trendy as it is now. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that was very stressful. And I had two small children and, you know, I really felt a lack of being creative because of the technical writing and so I wanted to do that, but it was really hard to like find time to do this. So it sort of came up that, you know, I just started this practice, almost like a yoga practice or whatever, writing one sentence a day, just in my journal. And then I realized a lot of them were kind of little stories on their own. And so um, I wrote a few and then eventually I took a leave of absence from my job for a year. Um, and dedicated that whole year to writing one sentence stories. And I was trying to write uh, one a week or whatever, finished one a week, every week or more than one a week. So, and I did that and it was a really wonderful year. And and actually that is what led to my working with Rodney Yee because um, I was really into yoga at the same time. And that year I practiced a lot and um, was practicing at home. And this friend of mine convinced me to go on a retreat with Rodney Yee and um, so when I was there, I took my one sentence stories with me because I was just taking them around everywhere and sharing them with people. And he talked to me about what it was up to and he wanted to look at the stories and he just loved them. And that got him really interested in me as a writer. So soon after that, he asked me to write a book with him when he actually barely knew me. That's quite a big, um, that's quite a big jump, isn't it? To go from reading one sentence stories to assuming <laughs> you can write a book. <laughs> Well, yeah, the thing is, it was a leap of faith, but it turned out I was the perfect person because I'd been writing whole instructional books for 20 years already. So I knew how to write books and how to 
explaining to people how to do things in simple language. So I brought that to, that's the thing that I've brought to, to all my work, right, is, is not just yoga knowledge, but, um, but a skill at explaining things in, in simple, accessible language, and whether it's yoga philosophy or how to do poses and, you know, to try to take out the jargon, you know, mm. a lot of yoga teachers will use some um, anatomical terms, you know, they'll say, let's, you know, don't do flexion or extension, you know, and people are like, what, you know, so I'm good at catching all that stuff. Cause I had to do that when I was a technical writer to catch all the, you know, techie jargon. That's such, that's such a wonderful skill. And I think it's really underappreciated. I've just written, it's not out yet, but a, a piece for yoga journal on the idea that knowledge isn't everything in that we assume that as teachers, we just need more knowledge, more courses. And actually what your students need is you to refine, as you say, your ability to communicate. And how, like, how would you advise teachers to go about refining that skill of learning how to actually communicate, as you said, more effectively, more efficiently? Um, well, I tell them to try to imagine one person that they're talking to, someone who doesn't know very much, like could be your grandmother, your next door neighbor or something. So, you know, like always assume you want to make it accessible to the lowest end of people who know the least because yet, you know, if other people know fancy words, they can still understand simple ones. So, you know, I I guess that's my simplest advice about it. And, but just to always to keep it in mind, just to keep looking at what you've done that way and look for jargon and look for anatomical terms and look for, you know, fancy Sanskrit words or whatever that people don't know what they mean. And, um, you know, you can introduce those words, but then explain them mm. very simply. And just don't assume that everybody knows what you do. What you do. Mm. So wh- where did you start on your yoga journey? How did you find yoga? Um, that's actually <laughs> tied to my high tech career. So I, I was working at a, a software company at the time in Boston. So um this was in when I was in my twenties, actually, and um, we wanted to have an exercise class in our company uh, facility. It was a very small company and very informal, and so we decided we're just going to hire an exercise teacher by ourselves. And one of the guys who worked there said, "Oh, my wife can do that." And we're like, "Oh, great!" And then <laughs> it turned out she was a yoga teacher, so I didn't even like know I was signing up for it. But you know, really, that very first class. I just had this amazing feeling in my body that this was something that I could do and love. I had done some ballet growing up and I loved it, but I didn't have the right body for it. Um, And just somehow yoga felt so right in my body that um, I fell in love with it right away. And, um, um, but it did take me a very long time just being in love with the physical practice till I started understanding a lot more about um, the effects that the physical practice could have besides sort of obvious like physical health. And then also a lot of the other sides of yoga and how they can influence your emotional and spiritual well-being as well as your physical well-being. So it was actually a long time um, of just doing yoga for exercise before, so did, before did I you, got there. You described there kind of the other benefits that yoga could have. Did did you search for them 
or was there a time when you kind of needed those of the benefits like was there a moment in your life where you, you you needed the calmness that yoga could potentially give you or needed really needed that self-reflection you know it, it wasn't really either of those which is strange but um because i in the prophets of the book i write about this breakdown that i had uh when i was really stressed out after i'd had my first child and living in a foreign country, which happened to be England. Yeah. <laughs> um, in a beautiful part of it, Cambridge Cam- is beautiful. Was it Cambridge? <laughs> I know, but it didn't really fit in there <laughs> for a number of reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, partly because I wasn't in a familiar place, but um, and didn't know anybody. But um, so I have actually, you know, was doing yoga during that period. And so I didn't, I wasn't really getting the benefits per se, for what I needed. Um, so it actually wasn't until later that, um, and that was when I was studying with Rodney Yee and working with him on the book, um, the first book, that I started to really learn about how certain poses can be calming and certain poses can be stimulating and certain poses can be quieting and all that. And um, I started to delve into the philosophy of yoga and all that. And that's when it started coming together for me in my own practice in terms of um, feeling, being able, and I was practicing like two hours every day, like how I could practice and make myself feel better when I needed to, instead of just whatever doing, working on handstand or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Trying to like approach it as a, a physical practice. And so then I started really practicing that way. And just for my own benefit, because um, I still, even though, you know, I wasn't in a breakdown or anything, then I still knew that I had that tendency. And I still, um, more than when I was younger, tended to get like very, like, you know, um, hyper from stress, and I tend to get more agitated in one of those um, um, more fiery type of people. So um and it was so good for me and i was really using it all the time and i started studying more about it with certain teachers like patricia walden and roger cole as well as um with rodney who helped help me design sequences for myself and stuff and um you know i was just kind of cruising along at that level with it for myself and writing and practicing and not really thinking about teaching and then it had an epiphany one day um, when I heard someone talking about the suicide of one of their colleagues and I just felt really sad. And I realized then that actually all this information I'm kind of collecting to (laughs) help myself would be really helpful for a lot of other people and that I wanted to share that. And that's why I went into a teacher training program. Now, you mentioned in the book the difference between how, I guess, yoga asana can help or meditation or kind of the study of yoga. And you you, you differentiate those things because often I think in the modern world, people are told, you know, when they're stressed out to go and meditate mm-hmm. and increasingly so, which is a good thing. But, you know, I'm and as you are a firm believer that meditation isn't a cure necessarily. Sometimes it gives you breathing space. And for certain people, meditation can calm mm-hmm. you. But actually in certain conditions like anxiety you mentioned, maybe actually meditation isn't the best thing. So can you talk a little bit to that and how actually 
yoga asana could be a good prescription as it were for things going on mentally much as meditation could be yeah um so the problem with meditation and and, and it actually took me um hearing from um one of my readers of the blog her name is dr lynn summerstein and i feature her a lot in the book actually too because we made this great connection and and uh, she she's been a great resource for me and supported me in writing the book um she wrote to me about that subject based on something she read on the blog that there were she had a concern about something that was written about someone who had depression and and how, you know, we were saying, well, maybe they should do this or this or meditation. And she said, well, you know, meditation is really counterindicated for people with depression. And now I've heard that from other people. But once I, I tuned into that, I started to realize that even though everyone just sort of prescribes it for everything and anything, that it actually isn't good for all people and all situations. So, I mean, the main thing is that um, unless you're really experienced with meditation, um, if you're going through some kind of emotional crisis, when you're meditating, you're left alone with your thoughts. And if you're feeling very upset already, that can actually just make things worse because you send us spiral down, as they say. So you, you could spiral down into your depression even further, or you could spiral up into like more anxiety and stress instead of calming down. Um, so that's really important to know. And then also um, for a lot of people, you know, maybe meditation just doesn't actually make them feel better. Um, I've been meditating now for uh, two uh a few years, like every single day, but, you know, it was very hard for me to start the practice because I didn't actually like it at first. Mm -hmm. And, um, it didn't make me feel good at all. I had all kinds of negative feelings that reminded me of having an insomnia attack. I realized in the middle of the night, I was like in this endless stretch of time left alone with my thoughts and it made me uneasy, <laughs> but you know, I, I use various techniques to get through that. And now I have a really solid practice and now I really look forward to doing it. And I hope I'll be doing it for the rest of my life. It's one reason I started, right? You can always meditate. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's another reason is just, you know, even if you're start, you know, and if you're not in the middle of the crisis, if it's like, that's what I say about everything I offer in the book, if it's not working for you, it's not working for you. Right. You have to like admit that and try something else. Now, the reason I think ASA can be so helpful is because it's a more um, demanding focus for your mind in that sense, you know, because you have to concentrate just to stand up and move your body. And then especially if you pay attention to your body and your alignment and all that, it's very engaging for your mind. So it tends to be easier for people who are very upset about things. That's why I think you know, going to just about any yoga class will make you feel better when you're not feeling good because you get a sort of like mental vacation mm. in in the yoga room. Um, and then besides that, there are whole classes of poses that really have this emotional effect on people, um, some of which there's science to explain and some 
of which there isn't, but you know, why poses are calming, why like inverted poses are calming. There's science behind that having to do with uh, the way your blood pressure is regulated. Um, why forward bends are quieting. I don't have any science behind that, <laughs> but we've all noticed what happens in a room when you teach forward bends or everyone's practicing forward bends. And on the opposite side, back bends are stimulating and they seem to be uplifting. And again, we've noticed in classes, like everyone starts talking and they get all lively. And so, you know, knowing that you can actually use the poses um, and get sequences or plan your own sequences that um, create certain feelings, emotional feelings for you that, that can make you feel better. And I do have a number of those in, in my book. What are your thoughts on, because I think, as you say, due to certain poses, certain emotions can be released or it can stimulate, stimulate an exploration of certain emotions. But I, I feel that I've been in classes where teachers really encourage a, ser a search for a particular emotion, almost like uh, putting that into your head or even a playing sad music to make you feel a certain way. So what's your thoughts on the balance behind that? As in, you know, creating a sequence that allows maybe an exploration or a teacher really through their words encouraging an exploration or a direction of a particular emotion um i don't really know about that i certainly never experienced the music you haven't heard no, that, that, that sad, sad music being played and to get <laughs> no. people to cry in shavasana the titanic uh, <laughs> seem a little manipulative yeah and, and that that's yeah. my question i guess i mean <laughs> the manipulative factor of it <laughs> It's sort of beyond, if you want people to have their own experience and understand what things do to them, then obviously if you're playing music to manipulate their emotions, or if you're telling them how this is going to make them feel, that's not helpful. Mm. It also, I think, confuses people sometimes because um, they might be told, oh, this is calming, yeah. and then they don't feel that way. And then they feel like something's wrong with them, right? And also that that is not true. There's nothing wrong with them. They're just different than the person who's teaching and something else will make them feel calming. You know, like whether you say meditation is calming and then, you know, I mean, I, actually an example I have is I can tell you how many people have said, I don't understand why like pranayama is supposed to be so calming and, you know, just make it, it's not calming for me. I don't, I don't understand that. Is there something wrong with me? And I'm like, well, what kind of pranayama are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, so sometimes there's even misinformation from teachers about, you know, they say, well, pranayama is calming. Well, it can be very stimulating if it's, um, if you're increasing, if you're uh, lengthening the inhalation or emphasizing the inhalation. So, you know, if you're someone who's like feeling agitated already or anxious already or something like that could just like really uh, uh, make you feel terrible. So, and um, I, have, I do have like a funny story about this. Um, my beloved teacher, Donald Moyer, who was my teacher for 14 years, um, he used to teach special pranayama classes and you had to sign up. He used to limit his classes and sizes because he didn't like to 
teach too many students at a time. And you had to sign up to get in his class, be in a wait list. So I finally could get in. I go, I go to his weekly class and it just doesn't make me feel good. And um, so <laughs> eventually I dropped out. And then I went on a retreat with him when he taught very few of these. And um, as soon as we arrived, um, it was the long, hard journey to get there. It was at Tassajara at the Zen Center. It was like way in the middle of nowhere. And then I was, you know, it was kind of stressful. And then he was like having everybody do pranayama. The minute they got there and I was like, oh, this is not making me feel good. So <laughs> I decided to tell him about that. And he's a really, he was a really sweet and understanding person who like really did understand that everybody's different and needs to do their awesomeness differently for themselves and so on. So I said, um, uh, you know, Donald, that this pranayama just isn't working for me. It doesn't make me feel good. And he said, oh, well, yeah, don't do it then. I mean, do you have something you like? And I said, well, yeah, I like this. And he said, well, just do that or just don't do anything. It's fine. He said, you know, actually, I developed my own form of pranayama because Iyengar, the way Iyengar taught it made me a nervous wreck. So <laughs> that's why I came up with my own system. <laughs> what's what's the balance then between i guess doing something that you're uncomfortable with with the hope that one day you might be comfortable with it and it has benefits then avoiding it altogether for instance you know warrior two when i first did warrior two i hated it i couldn't understand i was in i was i was this athletic 20 year old in a room full of much older people and i couldn't understand why i couldn't hold my arms up and i was getting very stressed out but i persisted and have gained value from that uh and I guess the question is, what if I just stop straight away? And, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm playing kind of devil's advocate here because I really you know, really know that pranayama really isn't good for everyone. But how would someone know the line where something isn't for them or it's just that that thing is hard at the beginning? Um, well, I mean, I think it, it depends on where you, what your current situation is. So I really address my book to people who are like go currently going through something mm. like going through stress going through anxiety going through depression going through a period of anger going through grief and at that time if you experiment with things and it's really not working for you i think it's better to look for something else <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> that makes a lot of sense yeah, if you're already stressed out don't then add more <laughs> add more to it <laughs> When you're not feeling stressed out, if you have some, re and, you know, you're feeling in a pretty good place and you have some reason why you think you want to learn that thing, whatever it might be. So it, actually meditation is a really good example for me. So, you know, I, I had an intellectual reason for wanting to, to learn it. I thought this is a practice I'll be able to rely on for the rest of my life. I'm older. I'm not going to be able to, who knows if I get to times or situations where I'm not able to do asanas to make myself feel better. Wouldn't it be great to always have this practice in my pocket? Like meaning I can do it really easily. I don't have to wait till I'm later to earn it, learn it, but I just know it in my bones already. So it was kind of, it's kind of my plan for old <laughs> age. Right. And, you know, so that was why I decided that I wanted to get really serious, even though I had tried many times before that I really wanted to get serious about it. And I was in a good place. So I wasn't, um, although I didn't like enjoy doing it, it wasn't making me freak out or spiral in any, into a bad place or anything. So that would also be 
a line of, you know, difference. Like if it's making you, uh, you just don't like it versus like, it's making you feel really bad. Mm. You know, like, let's say um, you were really agitated, either with anxiety or and depression, and you, everyone said restorative yoga is so great for calming you, right? And you went to the class and um, you just started feeling worse and worse because lying still was really hard for you, right? And your thoughts were just going crazy and, and it just wasn't working. It seems like during that period, you wouldn't want to force yourself to keep doing it. But then later on, if you suddenly think, well, you know, I'm feeling good, you know, maybe I'll give it a try now and, you know, see if I feel different about it. Or, you know, it seems like also a good thing for me to have in my repertoire then. then um, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, completely. You talk about feeling good a lot. And of course, everyone wants to feel good. And we, you know, do these practices to make ourselves feel better. But w- what do you think about you know, the importance of actually going into the more difficult emotions, you know, the grief, the sadness, um, you know, because yoga is so much about sort of facing the shadows. And I know you actually talk about uh, negative emotions in quotation marks and how you don't really like that word for them because they can actually be really, you know, amazing teachers and opportunities for us to grow. So what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I do think that's really important. I think that all the emotions we have, and that's why I don't like to use the word negative, anymore because i i was studying um quite a bit about human evolution as a way of understanding ourselves and sort of validating or a lot of things in in the yoga traditional text and um the emotions that we have all of them play a role in our lives and they give us important information so i do think um that taking time to listen to what's going on with yourself through self-inquiry is really important and deciding whether what you're feeling is uh, should prompt you to take a certain action or not, or whether um, it's actually sort of an untrue thing that you're experiencing. Um, because sometimes we have thoughts about things that turn out not to be, you know, not to be valid or whatever. And I do go into a lot of details about how to do that in the, in the book. But um, so, but sometimes, you know, we're so upset. It's again, it's like a doing a meditation, almost a self-inquiry for feeling really so much grief or so much, depression or anxiety or anger, it's hard to think clearly about what that's telling you. So, you know, I don't think the poses and the practices that you do to make yourself feel better, make you feel good necessarily, but they can sort of lighten things up a little bit and dial the stress down, dial the anxiety down. So, you know, using those in combination, like doing asanas to kind of make yourself feel a bit better And then when you feel a bit better, then you can start to listen to things more clearly. When you're in fight or flight mode, it's really interesting. Um, So when you're very stressed and you're in fight, fight or freeze mode, it actually affects what kind of thoughts you have. I I learned this from Dan Libby, who teaches yoga to veterans and uh, he's a psychologist. And so when you're in flight, fight, or freeze mode, the kind of thoughts you have are all based around 
that strategies for <laughs> fighting, fleeing or hiding. Right. So that's the kind of stuff you think about. So if you think of a, a soldier who's in the battlefield, you know, it makes sense for him to not be thinking about, you know, uh, other things besides just the mo in the moment, what he needs to do. But if you're having that fight for freeze response elsewhere, um, if you can relax a little bit, then your thoughts actually expand and open up so you can think of like more altruistic type thoughts, more compassionate thoughts and stuff. So instead of just having the angry thought of, you know, I want to hurt this person, you might have another thought of, oh, well, maybe I could talk to them this way and we could work it out or so on. So there's a benefit to kind of dialing down your whatever emotion you're experiencing enough to before you try to figure out and listen to what you should do about the feelings. It's, it, sorry, is that uh, almost, uh, you, you wrote a blog actually about taking that sacred pause. Would you say that that's, that's linked to that? You know, taking a pause um, before you re react to something. Yeah, that can be really good, but sometimes that's not enough because, mm. um, you know, if you're really worked up about something, you might need more. You might need to go home. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, if you need to go home. And, um, well, I mean, like an example is um, when my mother was dying, I was very uh, involved in her care. Um, she wasn't in my house, but I was going there every day. And so naturally I was feeling pre, you know, pre-grieving and stress about the whole situation because she was dying in a hospice care in a home, not, not in a hospital and I was managing things. And so, you know, as soon as I would get home, I would do legs up the wall for 25 minutes just to kind of calm myself down mm. there. So I, I needed that much to like kind of shift myself back to wouldn't say normal but you know to be able to function better can you talk about you said there the word uh pre-grief or pre-grieving and that's yeah. not something that actually you hear a lot about and people mm. I, I when my when my dad was passing away you know he had he had terminal cancer multiple well, he had cancer multiple times he had terminal cancer and when he passed away there wasn't I, I didn't go through a lot. I didn't really cry at all. There was a lot of pre-grief and I was always intrigued to consider how that pre-grief affected me or, you know, the mental rehearsal in my head of his death, how that then affected my, I guess, post-grief process. So can you speak a little bit about to, about the idea of pre-grief? Because I'm sure so many people now, more than ever, know relatives that are being diagnosed because people are living longer people are being diagnosed with terminal conditions or the like so i think it's actually something that it affects many people but it's never really discussed mm. yeah that's really interesting and i don't have anything in my book but i just heard someone talking about this on the radio i feel like always doing learning new things and getting excited about them i just heard someone talking on the radio about pre-grief and i was like oh yeah i've had that you know I had that with my mother. I remember my mother had it with her mother who was terminally ill and, you know, went through so much and then seemed so poised and calm at the funeral, you know, wasn't like losing it because, and then I asked her about it and she said, well, I just like went through it all, you know, beforehand or not all of it, but you know, and I went through so much of it beforehand. So um, yeah, I don't know what to say about it except for, yeah, it's good to talk about it and, mm -hmm. and, and understand that 
grief doesn't just happen as, as the person on the radio was saying, like the minute somebody dies, it doesn't just like switch on, you know, you're going through it beforehand and then you're going through it during and after and for as long as it needs to take to. So, I mean, that's, that's a really important thing um, that I just heard from all the, the people that I consulted to teach yoga for grief and one of whom is a hospice nurse, the one who, who's a death doula. And um, I think there were two hospice nurses actually. So there's some yoga teachers out there doing beautiful work. And um, yeah, they just all say it, it, it takes as long as it, you have to let it take as long, the grief take as long as it needs. So, you know, all these things about, oh, it takes a year or whatever, you know, that's just like who even came up with that number. It's, it's, it's not relevant, really. Can you tell us about your book, when it's coming out, what it's about, what inspired you to write it? <laughs> um, all right. It's coming out on June 14th, and it's going to be in bookstores everywhere, basically. Um, and um, the idea came to me because um, I had a lot of of information I realized to share that I hadn't really, some of which I shared on the blog, but you know, not all of it. And that I've been teaching some of it, but I had all this like 20 years worth of information saved up about uh, emotional well-being. And um, I actually came up with the idea of calling it for times of change before the pandemic, um, just because I, I realized, I think I was influenced by all the Buddhist books that are about that topic. And I'd never seen a yoga book about it. And um, I don't want to diss Buddhism, but as I was reading all those Buddhist books, I was thinking, well, wait, you know, we have meditation, we have philosophy, <laughs> and we have asana pranayama too. I was like, wait, can I, you know, pull all that stuff together? And I just felt like there was so much to add to that. Um, so I think that's, I, I don't even, that's my guess as to where the idea came from, um, is that I've been reading some of those types of books. And so, and, you know, for basically all the, when I read Buddhist texts now, I, I've gotten pretty educated about yoga texts and yoga philosophies. I could usually see the parallels because they influenced each other so much. Buddhism was in India for so long, um, getting very distracted. Mm -hmm. um, it was in India for so long, and it was considered one of the schools of yoga for a period. So there were just a lot of cross-fertilization. So they're not identical, but they do have, uh, at least yoga has a lot of the same things as Buddhism. So, And then about that, the chapters of the book. So what does the book seek to tackle? <laughs> it tackles a lot of big topics. <laughs> You know, that's actually one of my other goals in having this book. This there's, there's a lot of books out there on like single topics, and I kind of wanted to have it all in one place. So you know, yoga, uh, yoga for stress. There's books about that. Um, so that stress is in there, and um, anxiety, anger, depression, grief. Again, you might find whole books on those topics. Um, but I kind of wanted like an integrated approach to it. And um, then also uh, how you can see, 
work with your thoughts, which is actually a new way for me of putting it. I used to always just talk about yoga philosophy, but I realized that in the yoga tradition, there's actually a lot of yogic techniques for, for working with your thoughts. And so I have all that under um, accepting change. Originally, the title was going to be Adapting to and Accepting Change. And I also have a chapter on physical change and how you can adapt your yoga practice. I hadn't mentioned that. So uh, the editors, the publisher decided to call it Yoga for Times of Change instead. But that's kind of in my mind what the theme of the book is. Why do you think humans are so rubbish at change? Why do we resist change so much? (laughs) (laughs) I I actually have an explanation for it that, that... um that comes from um said understanding human evolution but i mean one of the things is that um sort of just our 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 nervous system is very um, primitive and so as soon as anything changes our nervous system immediately goes into a stress mode because it needs to prepare you to take action so so from that point of view any type of change is a form of stress. So even even a positive one. And I always use the example of getting married because when I got married, I got married to someone I was living with, you know, <laughs> knew each other really well. And we didn't even have a fancy wedding. So that wasn't it. And I was still a nervous wreck <laughs> on the day. So you know it was just such a big significant change that, you know, my nervous system was like, ah, change, (laughs) even if it's a good one or having a baby or anything like that. Um, And then also um, humans evolved to make plans. So that's like a very, uh, very good survival mechanism for us, you know, because we, um, in more primitive times, you know, if you, that's probably, I think that's why language developed even to make plans with. <laughs> so, you know, you're like, oh, I don't want to go out hunting by myself again. That's too dangerous. I'll get a group together and we'll all go hunting together. And, you know, that'll be safer. And here's how we're coordinating and we make this plan. And then, or, you know, we, last winter was terrible. We ran out of food. Let's save a bunch this time. So you make these plans. So, and, and you know, we all make plans. And I actually think during the pandemic is a really great illustration of how we, would make plans that wouldn't work out. I don't know about you, but I would just make plan after plan. Cause, oh, for one thing, I didn't see my adult children for over two years. So, you know, we'd make a plan and then, oh no, that would fall through. And then I'd make another plan. So um, when our plans don't work out, that's also a stressful thing for us because, you know, we have such a strong urge and um, so, uh, not being able to achieve what you planned is, is, is stressful because that's a, you think you feel in your nervous system. It's, it's for your survival, right? Does that help? Yeah. I was just, I just had a thought. I wonder if animals get scared of change too. Cats do. Cats really get, do cats, cats do not like change, do they? If you move an item yeah. in a house, that cat is not a happy, a happy kitten. Yeah. No, I think animals really like routines and so do, um, babies and small children, I think because they don't have much control over their own fate, 
they're depending mm-hmm. on you. And so they, the routine of knowing like when their food is going to come and, you know, like when, when the people are going to come home and all of that, I just, I actually just was um, taking care of it. My daughter's dog for four and a half months. So I, I really saw that we developed a bedtime routine and uh, we developed all those routines. And then my daughter showed up after four and a half months, she came here to get the dog and the dog was really happy, but it was really interesting because I was like, I said to my daughter, the dog had been sleeping in our room. Do you want, you know, the dog to sleep in, w- with you? And she said, yes. And then she took the dog out for the dog's last piece. We call it the dog came in and started running up the stairs to our room. <laughs> my daughter goes, no, Daisy, no. That <laughs> She took the dog into her room, but she had her routine that she was so comfortable with that she, got when she came here and you know I tried to do it to help her like settle in and know know what to expect at night and in the morning and all that stuff so yeah can you talk a little bit to anxiety because I know you run workshops for anxiety because I think it's quite I think anxiety can be quite misunderstood now remember someone that I was quite close to in the past suffered with it if suffer is the right word and I, I kind of read 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 a read a book on it but despite reading a book on it which is kind of a modern take on it i still didn't really understand it so how would you describe anxiety to i think a world that tends to uh, maybe misuse it perhaps um how do you think they misuse it because i'm not really sure about that maybe, maybe it's just people are quite free to use the word anxious uh as almost like a self-diagnosis i have i have anxiety and i i feel that in the one, and I'm sure maybe more people have it due to the ever-changing world and everything going on in the world. But I feel there's a lot of people saying that I have anxiety or I am an anxious person more than ever. So may- maybe they're not misusing it, but I think certainly in, in my eyes there is a, perhaps a, a, a misunderstanding of it, or for me, a lack of understanding. I really don't understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's both mild anxiety and you know. M- major anxiety that can lead to panic attacks. So there's a spectrum. So, you know, a friend who's saying I'm feeling anxious about this is probably correct, but it's more of a mild form. So that's what I would say. You know, there, there's a form that makes you so dysfunctional that you, you know, um, and there's usually some physical symptoms with it, like you can't sleep and or you can't eat or both, or you have headaches and, you know, fatigue and all like that when you, when you start getting worse. So I, w- I would just say there's, there's a spectrum, but I mean, it's basically having thoughts, uh, obsessing in your thoughts about, um, and feeling, feeling worried all the time and, and obsessing in your thoughts about like kind of what if scenarios, you know, like, like what if this happens or, or also just being sure the worst is going to happen, even mm-hmm. though you don't know that. Um, so it's, it's both a way of thinking in a way, in a way of feeling fearful and worried all the time. So, but it, you know, it really can interfere with your daily life. I, I, I actually think a lot of people are experiencing anxiety now mm. more than ever and you hear about a lot of people not being able to sleep. That's a, that's a, you know, that can definitely be a symptom because their minds are just 
spinning into all those thoughts and they can't stop them and and their nervous system won't let them sleep because the nervous system is like oh you're in danger because <laughs> you know when you have anxious thoughts your nervous system doesn't know that those things aren't really happening hmm. so if you start like worrying about um you know let let's say you're going to travel for the first time since the pandemic started and you just like worrying about what if I get on the plane and what if I sit next to this person and they're not wearing a mask and what, what if I get COVID when I'm in this other country and, and you know, you're lying there and you're unable to sleep because, you know, your mind is just working on that um, topic and your nervous system is like, Oh my God, you're in danger. So it's like, got to stay awake to protect yourself. <laughs> your nervous, mm-hmm. As I said, your nervous system's not very, uh, not very smart. So um does that? That does. What do you think? And uh, what one thing actually, just as a, as a slight segue, is I, I was reading about sleep the other day, and the, and there's lots of thoughts about why we actually sleep, and there's been lots of research, but there's no definitive answer. But one answer is a uh, is a uh, it's we are rehearsing uh, things that could happen to us in life. And the benefit of sleep is that we can go through things that might make us feel anxious or might scare us but we can go through them and experience them without actually the body having a response and the nervous system having a response. So we can go through grief, we can go through ecstasy. Yeah, but, but without a, an actual response happening. Like yeah, it's like, it's like playing, yeah. a, playing yeah, a computer I game. Actually, I mean, I think that idea is interesting, but I think the body does have a response. Mm. For example, if you have a nightmare and you wake up, your heart is pounding mm. and you're breathing fast or you're sweating or whatever and you you've had a, you can have a really strong reaction and that's why one of the reasons i tell people that they should practice conscious relaxation even if they're having insomnia and instead of taking a nap because naps actually don't reduce your stress levels and that's really so interesting what, what is conscious relaxation conscious relaxation is when you're awake And either you use something like meditation or focusing on your breath uh, to trigger the relaxation response. There's a a groundbreaking book that's influenced me so much called The Relaxation Response um, by a Harvard medical doctor, um, Dr. Herbert Benson. And... um, he talks about that. He talks about how you can trigger the relaxation response um, very simply. And that's when you you kind of instruct your body to shift to the uh, rest and digest response from the fight or flight response. So you're consciously making that happen. And you do it by focusing on um, neutral things. So instead of worrying about what you're worrying about, if you keep bringing your attention to your breath or your mantra or, you know, the guided relaxation that your teacher is taking you through to relax different parts of your body, you're telling your nervous system it's safe. Cause you keep, even though your mind wanders, you keep bringing it back. You're basically saying, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. And your nervous system starts quieting you down. And you can also do that with, um, um, inverted poses or partial inverted poses that are supported um, because that actually uses another mechanism, um, which is uh, the mechanism that controls your blood pressure. I think I mentioned that earlier mm. to trigger the relaxation response. So that's all while you're awake and things 
that has different effects on you being in rest and digest because it lowers your stress hormones, it quiets your mind and does all these things, um, gives you all these benefits that sleep doesn't. Although sleep is necessary and gives you other benefits, not just going through things, but like they think it cleans the brain, which is really important. And it's so, um, and other things like that. So, um, yeah, so counterintuitively, I think if you have insomnia, if you can spend some time doing conscious relaxation to calm yourself, you're going to have a better chance of sleeping than if you just take a nap and then try going to bed that night. The, the one thing I, I was, before, just to align that before you speak, Holly, is there was, I was listening to a podcast with a scientist that had taken it upon himself to, uh, break down all of the, you know, these personal development books and life advice books and look at the statistics behind all of them and do surveys and actually work at what actually works, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the one thing he made, oh, I just, I had a mind blank. What is, what were we just talking about? <laughs> Conscious relaxation. Conscious relaxation. Oh, sleep. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Indeed. No. So the idea was that actually one of the best ways to get to sleep if you can't sleep based on research and kind of very quantifiable was actually to try not to go to sleep which maybe is kind of to some degree what conscious relaxation is like trying not to go to sleep is also one of the best ways of actually getting to sleep so the whole counting sheep i guess yeah oh yeah no i do that all the time and that's what i recommend that people do it when when they get in bed um if they typically have insomnia is do some conscious relaxation practices um, or yoga poses or whatever that calms them down. But yeah, certainly I use techniques um, of uh, counting my breaths actually up to 10, which was like a meditation technique I learned recently, mm-hmm. or, uh, or else a calming pranayama or, or um, a mantra, like if I have a cold or something um, to, yeah, to do that practice to calm myself down enough. So I didn't really think of it as not trying to go to sleep so much as like trying to roll <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I can call it that. I don't like wake myself up if I start falling asleep, but um, yeah, to, to, to try to like trigger the relaxation response. I, I do. I was just doing it last night because I was upset about something and I was lying in bed, you know, just like ruminating over this thing. And I, I was like, yeah, doing my little number and eventually I did get to sleep. I read a really good article actually um, in Breathe magazine recently and I think it'd be so helpful for so many people and it's about yeah people that can't sleep and instead of just lying there trying to go to sleep because that can be that can trigger a real stress response you know actually just trying to sleep when you can't just get up and it's, it really ties in with what you're saying just do some kind of conscious relaxation where you're awake so go downstairs and, and read a book and at least you're switching on the, the relaxation hormone or whatever it is the whatever you call it instead of yeah lying in bed stressed basically. Yeah, I mean, I don't really like the idea of getting out of bed in the middle of the night. Turning no, nor do I. Nor do <laughs> I just coffee. think that that's over. Like, it's going to be over for a couple of hours. So I actually think if you can stay in bed, unless you're going nuts, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which sometimes happens. Uh, Sorry, carry on. You can stay in bed and practice in bed. So I, I always have like. You know, and I have blog posts about that and I have things in my book about that yoga you can do in bed. So, you know, 
You could do like a bridge pose with a little pillow under you. Maybe that might make you feel better because that's a slight inverted pose or you can do on these practices. Probably you need to engage your mind. Um, you could listen to, you know, one of those guided relaxations that people do with, that are easy to find. You could, you know, put headphones in if you need it, if you were with someone else and just let that relax you and but yeah I'd still I'd try to still stay in bed and um in the dark if possible not to stimulate mm. myself and then then work on relaxing that that's my idea but you know um should we do some quick fire questions yeah we'll yeah. do some quick fire questions if that's okay right. what if if you could just choose one way to relax what would it be for you personally a conscious Legs relaxation. Up Legs up the no. wall. Yeah. Mm. Buried a karate, no. No contest. That's okay. not good. With a, with a bolster underneath sacrum or just flat? Yes. Yes. With a lift under the sacrum um, because that makes you more inverted and it lifts your heart higher than your head. When you're in that position, you have to look at it. But um, just because you're pelvis is lifted, your heart ends up being higher than your head. And that's the essential component that you need to have your uh, barrel receptors um, notice that you're upside down, which will cause them to send a message to your brain to lower your blood pressure, slow your heart rate and so on. Um, so it t- takes a while, but um, that's the, the great benefit of having that lift under your pelvis. You can also do that just with your legs on a chair, if, if it's uncomfortable, if people are too stiff to, and the legs to feel comfortable with um, uh, their legs up the wall, they can just put their calves on a chair and put that mm-hmm. same lift under the pelvis and get the same effect. So what um, Judith last year calls instant Maui. <laughs> is there anything that is particularly sacred to you in your week, in your day, in your life, however you want to interpret that question? Um, I don't really know what that means to me. I don't really use that word. Or then so. let, let's rephrase in a different way. It's going to a different <laughs> angle. Is there anything yeah. really fundamental to your daily or weekly routine that you need to, you know, that really becomes a priority for you in terms of your well-being? Oh, yeah. Well, definitely now my meditation practice and um, also spending some time outside looking at not necessarily. I wish I could go forest bathing every day, but uh, I don't live that close to a forest, but I do live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of nature. And um, I try to spend that some time at, at every day walking and, and looking at people's gardens and trees and butterflies and things like that. Nice. And just to loop right back to where we started, would you mind leaving us with one of your one sentence stories, your favorite one? I'm just so intrigued. Oh, uh, you have to hold on while I get one because I just can't remember them. Oh, I thought Uh, maybe there'd be one that sticks out. (laughs) Don't worry if you can't. Well, it's been a it's been a while. It's been a while. Well, no, let's leave it. Let's leave it instead. Then perhaps with any kind of quote or passage that uh, that means something to you. There was one that I loved actually. 
Okay, if I can just say oh. this as well, this is from your book. This is Tell something you extracted by Christopher Wallace uh, about freedom and being present in the moment, which was freedom means a- freedom means actually experiencing the divinity in each moment, which is the same as not wanting the present moment to be any different from the way it is. When you don't want any moment to be different, when you give your heart's consent to what is, then you are no longer struggling or even waiting for a better situation. And therefore, you are free to fully show up for what is actually happening now. Mm. Which is really lovely. It's lovely. But is there, any, yeah. is there anything else, you, you, any quote or passage that means something to you or that anchors you in any sense? Um, you know, it's kind of funny because I ended up, and I don't know if it's just because I wrote things and then I got things that other people wrote. Um, but I, uh, I like the quotes that I got from other people better than things that I said myself. Oh, but if you want me to, I can send you a, a one sentence story. Yeah, no, um, please do. Yeah, well, I will, I will add yeah. that to the end of the podcast. Yeah. Do you have the chat book or you just saw the ones in, um, uh, yoga, the poetry of the body, or no, no, uh, no. We just we just saw the fact that you have these one sentence oh, stories. Oh, I yeah. see. All right. Well, yeah, I have some. I have some around. Um, okay. Yeah, there's some on, on a, a different blog, but um, oh, gosh, it's hard for me to know my favorite quote. Well, I'm just going to randomly pick one, but I look at this one from Jivana Heyman, who's had a, a big influence on me. I started practicing yoga regularly when I was 23, and in those days, I was definitely lost in searching for answers. I used alcohol and drugs in an effort to handle my anxiety and the grief from dealing with so many friends who were sick and dying of AIDS. Yoga really saved my life. I can't imagine what would have happened if I hadn't gotten so involved with my practice back then. Wow. Lovely, lovely way to end. Lovely way to end. Thank you so much. And and so where would you like people to go to find mm. out about you or your blog or the book? Um, the best place to find both about me and the blog is to go to yogafortimesofchange.com. The blog is there. Um, the Yoga for Healthy Aging blog is there on the you can find it on the uh, the homepage, and then also there's information about the Yoga for Times of Change book, and then the previous book, Yoga for Healthy Aging, is there, and my bio's around, and so on. So that's the best way. And also, there's a contact us menu item there that you can use if you want to email me for any reason. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. And uh, it, it, it's, I think it's actually easier to just have questions and let it go this way than, than kind of be interviewed with prepared answers. So I, I enjoyed the Honestly conversation. Unbalanced.